Section 18 of The Oxford Book of American Essays Chosen by Brander Matthews This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 18 Cooper was the first, after the close of the War of 1812, to cast off the colonial spirit and take up his position as a representative of genuine American literature. But he soon had companions who carried still higher the standard which he had raised. To this period, which closed with our Civil War, belong many of the names which are today among those most cherished by English-speaking people everywhere. We see the national spirit in Longfellow, turning from the themes of the old world to those of the new. In the beautiful creations of the sensitive and delicate imagination of Hawthorne, there was a new tone and a rich originality, and the same influence may be detected in the remarkable poems and wild fancies of Poe. We find a like native strength in the sparkling verses of Holmes, in the pure and gentle poetry of Whittier, and in the firm, vigorous work of Lowell. A new leader of independent thought arises in Emerson, destined to achieve a worldwide reputation. A new school of historians appears, adorned by the talents of Prescott, Bancroft, and Motley. Many of these distinguished men were far removed in point of time from the beginning of the new era, but they all belonged to and were the result of the national movement, which began its onward march as soon as we had shaken ourselves clear from the influence of the colonial spirit upon our public affairs by the struggle which culminated in Madison's War, as the Federalists loved to call it. These successes in various departments of intellectual activity were all due to an instinctive revolt against colonialism, but nevertheless the old and time-worn spirit which made Cooper pretend to be an Englishman in 1820 was very strong and continued to impede our progress toward intellectual independence. We find it clinging to the lesser and weaker forms of literature. We see it in fashion and society and in habits of thought, but we find the best proof of its vitality in our sensitiveness to foreign opinion. This was a universal failing. The body of the people showed it by bitter resentment, the cultivated and highly educated by abject submission and deprecation, or by cries of pain. As was natural in a very young nation, just awakened to its future destiny, just conscious of its still undeveloped strength, there was at this time a vast amount of exuberant self-satisfaction, of cheap rhetoric, and of noisy self-glorification. There was a corresponding readiness to take offence at the unfavourable opinion of outsiders, and at the same time an eager and insatiable curiosity to hear foreign opinions of any kind. We were, of course, very open to satire and attack. We were young, undeveloped, with a crude, almost raw civilization, and a great inclination to be boastful and conceited. Our English cousins, who had failed to conquer us, bore us no good will, and were quite ready to take all the revenge which books of travel and criticism could afford. It is to these years that Marriott, 
trollope hamilton dickens and a host of others belong most of their productions are quite forgotten now the only ones which are still read probably are the american notes and martin chuzzlewith the former preserved by the fame of the author the latter by its own merit as a novel there was abundant truth in what dickens said to take the great novelist as the type of this group of foreign critics it was an age in which elijah pogram and jefferson brick flourished rankly it is also true that all that dickens wrote was poisoned by his utter ingratitude and that to describe the united states as populated by nothing but bricks and pograms was one-sided and malicious and not true to facts but the truth or the falsehood the value or the worthlessness of these criticisms are not of importance now the striking fact and the one we are in search of is the manner in which we bore these censures when they appeared we can appreciate contemporary feeling at that time only by delving in much forgotten literature and even then we can hardly comprehend fully what we find so completely has our habit of mind altered since those days we received these strictures with a howl of anguish and a scream of mortified vanity we winced and writhed and were almost ready to go to war because english travellers and writers abused us it is usual now to refer to these ebullitions of feeling to our youth probably from analogy with the youth of an individual but the analogy is misleading sensitiveness to foreign opinion is not especially characteristic of a youthful nation or at least we have no cases to prove it and in the absence of proof the theory falls on the other hand this excessive and almost morbid sensibility to a characteristic of provincial colonial or dependent states especially in regard to the mother country we raged and cried out against adverse english criticism whether it was true or false just or unjust and we paid it this unnatural attention because the spirit of the colonist still lurked in our hearts and affected our mode of thought we were advancing fast on the road to intellectual and moral independence but we were still far from the goal this second period in our history closed as has been said with the struggle generated by a great moral question which finally absorbed all the thoughts and passions of the people and culminated in a terrible civil war we fought to preserve the integrity of the union we fought for our national life and nationality prevailed the magnitude of the conflict the dreadful suffering which it caused for the sake of principle the uprising of a great people elevated and ennobled the whole country the floodgates were opened and the tremendous tide of national feeling swept away every meaner emotion we came out of the battle after an experience which brought a sudden maturity with it stronger than ever but much graver and soberer than before we came out self-poised and self-reliant with a true sense of dignity and of our national greatness which years of peaceful development could not have given us the sensitiveness to foreign opinion which had been the marked 
feature of our mental condition before the war had disappeared it had vanished in the smoke of battle as the colonial spirit disappeared from our politics in the war of eighteen twelve englishmen and frenchmen have come and gone and written their impressions of us and made little splashes in the current of everyday topics and have been forgotten just now it is the fashion of every englishman who visits this country particularly if he is a man of any note to go home and tell the world what he thinks of us some of these writers do this without taking the trouble to come here first sometimes we read what they have to say out of curiosity we accept what is true whether unpalatable or not philosophically and smile at what is false the general feeling is one of wholesome indifference we no longer see salvation and happiness in favourable foreign opinion or misery in the reverse the colonial spirit in this direction also is practically extinct but while this is true of the mass of the american people whose mental health is good it is also true of the great body of sound public opinion in the united states it has some marked exceptions and these exceptions constitute the lingering remains of the colonial spirit which survives and shows itself here and there even at the present day with a strange vitality in the years which followed the close of the war it seemed as if colonialism had been utterly extinguished but unfortunately this was not the case the multiplication of great fortunes the growth of a class rich by inheritance and the improvement in methods of travel and communication all tended to carry large numbers of americans to europe the luxurious fancies which were born of increased wealth and the intellectual tastes which were developed by the advance of the higher education and to which an old civilization offers peculiar advantages and attractions combined to breed in many persons a love of foreign life and foreign manners these tendencies and opportunities have revived the dying spirit of colonialism we see it most strongly in the leisure class which is gradually increasing in this country during the miserable ascendancy of the second empire a band of these persons formed what was known as the american colony in paris perhaps they still exist if so their existence is now less flagrant and more decent when they were notorious they presented the melancholy spectacle of americans admiring and aping the manners habits and vices of another nation when that nation was bent and corrupted by the cheap meretricious and rotten system of the third napoleon they furnished a very offensive example of peculiarly mean colonialism this particular phase has departed but the same sort of americans are unfortunately still common in europe i do not mean of course those persons who go abroad to buy social consideration nor the women who trade on their beauty or their wits to gain a brief and dishonouring notoriety these last are merely adventurers and adventuresses who are common to all nations the people referred to here form that large class 
comprising many excellent men and women no doubt who pass their lives in europe mourning over the inferiority of their own country and who become thoroughly denationalized they do not change into frenchmen or englishmen but are simply disfigured and deformed americans we find the same wretched habit of thought in certain groups among the rich and idle people of our great eastern cities especially in new york because it is the metropolis these groups are for the most part made up of young men who despise everything american and admire everything english they talk and dress and walk and ride in certain ways because they imagine that the english do these things after that fashion they hold their own country in contempt and lament the hard fate of their birth they try to think that they form an aristocracy and become at once ludicrous and despicable the virtues which have made the upper classes in england what they are and which take them into public affairs into literature and politics are forgotten for anglo-americans imitate the vices or the follies of their models and stop there if all this were merely a fleeting fashion an attack of anglomania or of gallomania of which there have been instances enough everywhere it would be of no consequence but it is a recurrence of the old and deep-seated malady of colonialism it is a lineal descendant of the old colonial family the features are somewhat dim now and the vitality is low but there is no mistaking the hereditary traits the people who thus despise their own land and ape english manners flatter themselves with being cosmopolitans when in truth they are genuine colonists petty and provincial to the last degree we see a like tendency in the same limited but marked way in our literature some of our cleverest fiction is largely devoted to studying the character of our countrymen abroad that is either denationalized americans or americans with a foreign background at times this species of literature resolves itself into an agonized effort to show how foreigners regard us and to point out the defects which jar upon foreign susceptibilities even while it satirizes the denationalized american the endeavor to turn ourselves inside out in order to appreciate the trivialities of life which impress foreigners unpleasantly is very unprofitable exertion and the europeanized american is not worth either study or satire writings of this kind again are intended to be cosmopolitan in tone and to evince a knowledge of the world and yet they are in reality steeped in colonialism we cannot but regret the influence of a spirit which wastes fine powers of mind and keen perceptions in a fruitless striving and a morbid craving to know how we appear to foreigners and to show what they think of us we see also men and women of talent going abroad to study art and remaining there the atmosphere of europe is more congenial to such pursuits and the struggle as nothing to what must be encountered here but when it leads to an abandonment of america the result is wholly vain sometimes these people become tolerably successful french artists 
but their nationality and individuality have departed and with them originality and force the admirable school of etching which has arisen in new york the beautiful work of american wood engraving the chelsea tiles of low which have won the highest prizes at english exhibitions the silver of tiffany specimens of which were bought by the japanese commissioners at the paris exposition are all strong genuine work and are doing more for american art and for all art than a wilderness of over-educated and denationalized americans who are painting pictures and carving statues and writing music in europe or in the united states in the spirit of colonists and bowed down by a wretched dependence there is abundance of splendid material all about us here for the poet the artist or the novelist the conditions are not the same as in europe but they are not on that account inferior they are certainly as good they may be better our business is not to grumble because they are different for that is colonial we must adapt ourselves to them for we alone can use properly our own resources and no work in art or literature ever has been or ever will be of any real or lasting value which is not true original and independent if these remnants of the colonial spirit and influence were as they look at first sight merely trivial accidents they would not be worth mentioning but the range of their influence although limited affects an important class it appears almost wholly among the rich or the highly educated in art and literature that is to a large extent among men and women of talent and refined sensibilities the follies of those who imitate english habits belong really to but a small portion of even their own class but as these follies are contemptible the wholesome prejudice which they excite is naturally but thoughtlessly extended to all who have anything in common with those who are guilty of them in this busy country of ours the men of leisure and education although increasing in number are still few and they have heavier duties and responsibilities than anywhere else public charities public affairs politics literature all demand the energies of such men to the country which has given them wealth and leisure and education they owe the duty of faithful service because they and they alone can afford to do that work which must be done without pay the few who are imbued with the colonial spirit not only fail in their duty and become contemptible and absurd but they injure the influence and thwart the activity of the great majority of those who are similarly situated and who are also patriotic and public-spirited in art and literature the vain struggle to be somebody or something other than an american the senseless admiration of everything foreign and the morbid anxiety about our appearance before foreigners have the same deadening effect such qualities were bad enough in eighteen twenty they are a thousand times meaner and more foolish now they retard the march of true progress which here as elsewhere must be in the direction of nationality and independence this does not mean that we are to expect or to seek for something utterly different something new and strange in art literature or society 
originality is thinking for one's self simply to think differently from other people is eccentricity some of our english cousins for instance have undertaken to hold walt whitman up as the herald of the coming literature of american democracy not because he was a genius not for his merits alone but largely because he departed from all received forms and indulged in barbarous eccentricities they mistake difference for originality whitwin was a true and a great poet but it was his power and imagination which made him so not his eccentricities when whitman did best he was as a rule nearest to the old and well-proved forms we like our contemporaries everywhere are the heirs of the ages and we must study the past and learn from it and advance from what has been already tried and found good that is the only way to success anywhere or in anything but we cannot enter upon that or any other road until we are truly national and independent intellectually and are ready to think for ourselves and not look to foreigners in order to find out what they think to those who grumble and sigh over the inferiority of america we may commend the opinion of a distinguished englishman as they prefer such authority mr herbert spencer said recently i think that whatever difficulties they may have to surmount and whatever tribulations they may have to pass through the americans may reasonably look forward to a time when they will have produced a civilization grander than any the world has known even the englishmen whom our provincials of to-day adore even those who are most hostile pay a serious attention to america that keen respect for success and anxious deference to power so characteristic of great britain find expression every day more and more in the english interest in the united states now that we do not care in the least about it and be it said in passing no people despises more heartily than the english a man who does not love his country to be despised abroad and regarded with contempt and pity at home is not a very lofty result of so much effort on the part of our lovers of the british but it is the national and fit reward of colonialism members of a great nation instinctively patronize colonists it is interesting to examine the sources of the colonial spirit and to trace its influence upon our history and its gradual decline the study of a habit of mind with its tenacity of life is an instructive and entertaining branch of history but if we lay history and philosophy aside the colonial spirit as it survives to-day although curious enough is a mean and noxious thing which cannot be too quickly or too thoroughly stamped out it is the dying spirit of dependence and wherever it still clings it injures weakens and degrades it should be exercised rapidly and completely so that it will never return i cannot close more fitly than with the noble words of emerson let the passion for america cast out the passion for europe they who find america insipid they for whom london and paris have spoiled their own homes can be spared to return to those cities i not only see a career at home 
for more genius than we have but for more than there is in the world new york after paris by w c brownell no american not a commercial or otherwise hardened traveller can have a soul so dead as to be incapable of emotion when on his return from a long trip abroad he catches sight of the low-lying and insignificant long island coast one's excitement begins indeed with the pilot boat the pilot boat is the first concrete symbol of those native and normal relations with one's fellow-men which one has so long observed in infinitely varied manifestation abroad but always as a spectator and a stranger and which one is now on the eve of sharing himself as she comes up swiftly white and graceful drops her pilot crosses the steamer's bows tacks and picks up her boat in the foaming wake she presents a spectacle beside which the most picturesque mediterranean craft with coloured sails and lazy evolutions appear mistily in the memory as elements of a feeble and conventional ideal the ununiformed pilot clambers on board makes his way to the bridge and takes command with an equal lack of french manner and of english affectation distinctly palpable to the sense sharpened by long absence into observing native characteristics as closely as foreign ones if the season be right the afternoon is bright the range of vision apparently limitless the sky nearly cloudless and by contrast with the european firmament almost colourless the july sun such as no parisian or londoner ever saw the french reproach us for having no word for patrie as distinct from pies we have the thing at all events and cherish it and it needs only the proximity of the foreigner from whom in general we are so widely separated to give our patriotism a tinge of the veriest chauvinism that exists in france itself we fancy the feeling old-fashioned and imagine ourselves to be the most cosmopolitan the least prejudiced temperament in the world it is reasonable that it should be the extreme sensitiveness noticed in us by all foreign observers during the antebellum epoch and ascribed by tocqueville to our self-distrust is naturally inconsistent with our position and circumstances to-day a population greater than that of any of the great nations isolated by the most enviable geographical felicity in the world from the narrowing influences of international jealousy apparent to every american who travels in europe is increasingly less concerned at criticism than a struggling provincial republic of half its size and along with our self-confidence and our carelessness of abroad it is only with the grosser element among us that national conceit has deepened in general we are apt to fancy we have become cosmopolitan in proportion as we have lost our provincialism with us surely the individual has not withered and if the world has become more and more to him it is because it is the world at large and not the pent-up confines of his own country's history and extent la patrie in danger would be quickly enough rescued 
there is no need to prove that over again even to our own satisfaction but in general la patrie not being in any danger being on the contrary apparently on the very crest of the wave of the world it is felt not to need much of one's active consideration and passively indeed is viewed by many people probably as a comfortable and gigantic contrivance for securing a free field in which the individual may expand and develop america says emerson america is opportunity after all the average american of the present day says a country stands or falls by the number of properly expanded and developed individuals it possesses but the happening of any one of a dozen things unexpectedly betrays that all this cosmopolitanism is in great measure and so far as sentiment is concerned a veneer and a disguise such a happening is the very change from blue water to grey that announces to the returning american the nearness of that country which he sometimes thinks he prizes more for what it stands for than for itself it is not he then feels with a sudden flood of emotion that america is home but that home is america america comes suddenly to mean what it never meant before unhappily for this exaltation ordinary life is not composed of emotional crises it is ordinary life with a vengeance which one encounters in issuing from the steamer dock and facing again his native city paris never looked so lovely so exquisite to the sense as it now appears in the memory all that parisian regularity order decorum and beauty into which although a stranger your own activities fitted so perfectly that you were only half conscious of its existence was not then merely normal wholly a matter of course emerging into west street amid the solicitations of hackman the tinkling jog-trot of the most ignoble horse-cars you have seen since leaving home the dry dust blowing into your eyes the gaping black holes of broken pavements the unspeakable filth the line of red brick buildings prematurely decrepit the sagging multitude of telegraph wires the clumsy electric lights depending before the beer saloon and the groggery the curious confusion of spruceness and squalor in the aspect of these latter which also seem legion confronting all this for the first time in three years say you think with wonder of your disappointment at not finding the tuileries garden a mass of flowers and with a blush of the times you have told frenchmen that new york was very much like paris new york is at this moment the most foreign-looking city you have ever seen in going abroad the american discounts the unexpected returning after the insensible orientation of europe the contrast with things recently familiar is prodigious because one is so entirely unprepared for it one thinks to be at home and finds himself at the spectacle new york is less like any european city than any european city is like any other it is distinguished from them all even from london by the ignoble character of the res publique and the refuge of taste care wealth pride self-respect even in private and personal regions a splendid carriage liveried servants without 
and paris dresses within rattling over the scandalous paving splashed by the neglected mud catching the rusty drippings of the hideous elevated railway wrenching its axle in the tram-track in avoiding a mountainous wagon-load of commerce on this hand and a garbage cart on that caught in a jam of horse-cars and a blockade of trucks finally depositing its dainty freight to pick its way across a sidewalk eloquent of official neglect and private contumely to a shop-door or a residence stoop such a contrast as this sets us off from europe very definitely and in a very marked degree there is no palpable new york in the sense in which there is a paris a vienna a milan you can touch it at no point it is not even ocular there is instead a fifth avenue a broadway a central park a chatham square how they have dwindled by the way fifth avenue might be any one of a dozen london streets in the first impression it makes on the retina and leaves on the mind the opposite side of madison avenue is but a step away the spacious hall of the fifth avenue hotel has shrunk to stifling proportions thirty-fourth street is a lane and city hall a bandbox and central park a narrow strip of elegant landscape whose lateral limitations are constantly forced upon the sense by the lennox library on one side and a monster apartment house on the other the american fondness for size for pure bigness needs explanation it appears we care for size but inartistically we care nothing for proportion which is what makes size count everything is on the same scale there is no play no movement an exception should be made in favor of the big business building and the apartment house which have arisen within a few years and which have greatly accentuated the grotesqueness of the city's skyline as seen from either the new jersey or the long island shore they are perhaps rather high than big many of them were built before the authorities noticed them and followed unequally in the steps of other civilized municipal governments from that of ancient rome down in prohibiting the passing of a fixed limit but bigness has also evidently been one of their architonic motives and it is to be remarked that they are so far out of scale with the surrounding buildings as to avoid the usual commonplace only by creating a positively disagreeable effect the aspect of fifty-seventh street between broadway and seventh avenue for example is certainly that of the world upside down a gothic church utterly concealed not to say crushed by contiguous flats and confronted by the overwhelming osborne which towers above anything in the neighborhood and perhaps makes the most powerful impression that the returned traveller receives during his first week or two of strange sensations yet the osborne's dimensions are not very different from those of the arc de toilet it is true it does not face an avenue of majestic buildings a mile and a half long and two hundred and thirty feet wide 
but the association of these two structures one a private enterprise and the other a public monument together with the obvious suggestions of each furnish a not misleading illustration of both the spectacular and the moral contrast between new york and paris as it appears unduly magnified no doubt to the sense surprised to notice it at all still another reason for the foreign aspect of the new yorker's native city is the gradual withdrawing of the american element into certain quarters its transformation or essential modification in others and in the rest the presence of the lees of europe at every step you are forced to realize that new york is the second irish and the third or fourth german city in the world however great our success in drilling this foreign contingent of our social army into order and reason and self-respect and it is not to be doubted that this success gives us a distinction wholly new in history nevertheless our effect upon its members has been in the direction of development rather than of assimilation we have given them our opportunity permitted them the expansion denied them in their own several feudalities made men of serfs demonstrated the utility of self-government under the most trying conditions proved the efficacy of our elastic institutions on a scale truly grandiose but evidently so far as new york is concerned we have done this at the sacrifice of a distinct and obvious nationality to an observant sense new york is nearly as little national as port said it contrasts absolutely in this respect with paris whose assimilating power is prodigious every foreigner in paris eagerly seeks parisianation ocularly therefore the note of new york seems that of characterless individualism the monotony of the chaotic composition and movement is paradoxically its most abiding impression and as the whole is destitute of definiteness of distinction the parts are correspondingly individually insignificant where in the world are all the types one asks oneself in renewing his old walks and desultory wanderings where is the new york counterpart of that astonishing variety of types which makes paris what it is morally and pictorially the Paris of Balzac, as well as the Paris of M. Jean Berard. Of a sudden, the lack of nationality in our familiar literature and art becomes luminously explicable. One perceives why Mr. Howells is so successful in confining himself to the simplest, broadest, most representative representatives, why Mr. James goes abroad invariably for his mission scène and often for his characters why mr reinhardt lives in paris and mr abbey in london new york is this and that it is incontestably unlike any other great city but compared with paris its most impressive trait is its lack of that organic quality which results from variety of types thus compared it seems to have only the variety of individuals which results in monotony it is the difference between noise and music pictorially the general aspect of new york is such that the mind speedily takes refuge in insensitiveness 
its expansiveness seeks exercise in other directions business dissipation study aestheticism politics the life of the senses is no longer possible this is why one's sense of art is so stimulated by going abroad and one's sense for art in its freest frankest most universal and least special intense and enervated development is especially exhilarated by going to paris it is why too on one's return one can note the gradual decline of his sensitiveness his severity the progressive atrophy of a sense no longer called into exercise i had no conception before said a chicago broker to me one day in paris with intelligent eloquence of a finished city chicago undoubtedly presents a greater contrast to paris than does new york and so perhaps better prepares one to appreciate the parisian quality but the returned new yorker cannot fail to be deeply impressed with the finish the organic perfection the elegance and reserve of the paris mirrored in his memory it is it possible that the uniformity the monotony of paris architecture the prose note in parisian taste should once have weighed upon his spirit riding once on the top of a paris tramway betraying an understanding of english by reading an american newspaper that subconsciousness of moral isolation which the foreigner feels in paris as elsewhere was suddenly and completely destroyed by my next neighbor who remarked with contemptuous conviction and a manhattan accent when you've seen one block of this infernal town you've seen it all he felt sure of sympathy in advance probably few new yorkers would have differed with him the universal light stone and brown paint the wide sidewalks the asphalt pavement the indefinitely multiplied kiosks the prevalence of a few marked kinds of vehicles the uniformed workmen and workwomen the infinite reduplication in a word of easily recognized types is at first mistaken by the new yorker for that dead level of uniformity which is of all things in the world the most tiresome to him in his own city after a time however he begins to realize three important facts in the first place these phenomena which so vividly force themselves on his notice that their reduplication strikes him more than their qualities are nevertheless of a quality altogether unexampled in his experience for fitness and agreeableness in the second place they are details of a whole members of an organism and not they but the city which they compose the finished city of the acute chicagoan is the spectacle in the third place they serve as a background for the finest group of monuments in the world on his return he perceives these things with a melancholy a non lucendo luminousness the dead level of murray hill uniformity he finds the most agreeable aspect in the city and the reason is that paris has habituated him to the exquisite the rational pleasure to be derived from that organic spectacle a finished city far more than that murray hill is respectable and appropriate and that almost any other prospect except in spots of very limited area which emphasize the surrounding ugliness is acutely displeasing the latter is certainly very true 
we have long frankly reproached ourselves with having no art commensurate with our distinction in other activities resignedly attributing the lack to our hitherto necessary material preoccupation but what we are really accounting for in this way is our lack of titians and bramantes we are for the most part quite unconscious of the character of the american aesthetic substratum so to speak as a matter of fact we do far better in the production of striking artistic personalities than we do in the general medium of taste and culture we figure well invariably at the salon at home the artist is simply either driven in upon himself or else awarded by the naive clientele an eminence so far out of perspective as to result unfortunately both for him and for the community he pleases himself follows his own bent and prefers salience to conformability for his work because his chief aim is to make an effect this is especially true of those of our architects who have ideas but these are the exceptions of course and the general aspect of the city is characterized by something far less agreeable than mere lack of symmetry it is characterized mainly by an all-pervading bad taste in every detail into which the element of art enters or should enter that is to say nearly everything that meets the eye however on the other hand parisian uniformity may depress exuberance it is the condition and often the cause of the omnipresent good taste not only is it true that as mr hamerton remarks in the better quarters of the city a building hardly ever rises from the ground unless it has been designed by some architect who knows what art is and endeavours to apply it to little things as well as great but it is equally true that the national sense of form expresses itself in every appurtenance of life as well as in the masses and details of architecture in new york our noisy diversity not only prevents any effect of ensemble and makes as i say the old commonplace brownstone regions the most reposeful and rational prospects of the city but it precludes also in a thousand activities and aspects the operation of the salutary constraint and conformity without which the most acutely sensitive individuality inevitably declines to a lower level of form and taste la mode for example seems scarcely to exist at all or at any rate to have taken refuge in the chimney-pot hat and the tournure the dude it is true has been developed within a few years but his distinguishing trait of personal extinction has had much less success and is destined to a much shorter life than his appellation which has wholly lost its original significance in gaining its present popularity every woman one meets in the street has a different bonnet every street-car contains a millinery museum and the mass of them may be judged after the circumstance that one of the most fashionable fifth avenue modistes flaunts a sign of enduring brass announcing english round hats and bonnets the enormous establishments of ready-made men's clothing seem not yet to have made their destined impression in the direction of uniformity 
the contrast in dress of the working classes with those of paris is as conspicuously unfortunate aesthetically as politically and socially it may be significant ocularly it is a substitution of a cheap faded and ragged imitation of bourgeois costume for the marvel of neatness and propriety which composes the uniform of the parisienne ouvre and ouvrier broadway below tenth street is a forest of signs which obscure the thoroughfare conceal the buildings overhang the sidewalks and exhibit severally and collectively a taste in harmony with the teutonic and semitic enterprise which almost exclusively they attest the shop windows show which is one of the great spectacles of paris is niggard and shabby that of philadelphia has considerably more interest that of london nearly as much our clumsy coinage and countrified currency our eccentric bookbindings that class of our furniture and interior decoration which may be described as american rococo that multifariously horrible machinery devised for excluding flies from houses and preventing them from alighting on dishes for substituting a draught of air for stifling heat for relieving an entire population from that surplusage of old-fashioned breeding involved in shutting doors for rolling and rattling change in shops for enabling you to put only the exact fare in the box the racket of pneumatic tubes of telephones of aerial trains the practice of reticulating pretentious facades with fire escapes in lieu of fireproof construction the vast mass of our nickel-plated paraphernalia our zinc cemetery monuments our comic valentines and serious christmas cards and grocery labels and fancy job printing and theatre posters our conspicuous cuspidors and our conspicuous need of more of them the tone of many articles in our most popular journals their references to each other their illustrations the sunday panorama of shirt-sleeved ease and the weekday fatigue costume of curl papers and mother hubbard's general in some quarters our sumptuous new bar-rooms decorated perhaps on the principle that les mauvais goûts men après all these phenomena the list of which might be indefinitely extended are so many witnesses of a general taste public and private which differs cardinally from that prevalent in paris in fine the material spectacle of new york is such that at last with some anxiety one turns from the external vileness of every prospect to seek solace in the pleasure that man affords but even after the wholesome american reaction has set in and your appetite for the life of the senses is starved into indifference for what begins to seem to you an unworthy ideal after you are patriotically readjusted and feel once more the elation of living in the future owing to the dearth of sustenance in the present you are still at the mercy of perceptions too keenly sharpened by your paris sojourn to permit blindness to the fact that paris and new york contrast as strongly in moral atmosphere as in material aspect you become contemplative 
and speculate pensively as to the character and quality of those native and normal conditions those relations which finally you have definitely resumed what is it that vague and pervasive moral contrast which the american feels so potently on his return from abroad how can we define that apparently undefinable difference which is only the more sensible for being so elusive book after book has been written about europe from the american standpoint about america from the european standpoint none of them has specified what everyone has experienced the spectacular and the material contrasts are easily enough characterized and it is only the unreflecting or the superficial who exaggerate the importance of them we are by no means at the mercy of our appreciation of parisian spectacle of the french machinery of life we miss or we do not miss the salon carré the view of the south transept of notre dame as one descends the rue saint jacques the theatre francais the concerts the luxembourg gardens the excursions to the score of charming suburban places the library at the corner the convenient cheap cab the manners of the people the quiet the climate the constant entertainment of the senses we have in general too much work to do to waste much time in regretting these things in general work is by natural selection so invariable a concomitant of our unrivalled opportunity to work profitably that it absorbs our energies so far as this palpable sphere is concerned but what is it that throughout the hours of busiest work and closest application as well as in the preceding and following moments of leisure and the occasional intervals of relaxation makes every one vaguely perceive the vast moral difference between life here at home and life abroad notably life in france what is the subtle influence pervading the moral atmosphere in new york which so markedly distinguishes what we call life here from life in paris or even in penedipi it is i think distinctly traceable to the intense individualism which prevails among us magnificent results have followed our devotion to this force incontestably we have spared ourselves both the acute and the chronic misery for which the tyranny of society over its constituent parts is directly responsible we have moreover in this way not only freed ourselves from the tyranny of despotism such for example as is exerted socially in england and politically in russia but we have undoubtedly developed a larger number of self-reliant and potentially capable social units than even a democratic system like that of france which sacrifices the unit to the organism succeeds in producing we may truly say that material as we are accused of being we turn out more men than any other nationality and if some frenchman points out that we attach an esoteric sense to the term man and that at any rate our men are not better adapted than some others to a civilized environment which demands other qualities than honesty energy and intelligence we may be quite content to leave him his objection and to prefer what seems to us manliness to civilization itself 
At the same time, we cannot pretend that individualism has done everything for us that could be desired. In giving us the man, it has robbed us of the milieu. Morally speaking, the milieu with us scarcely exists. Our difference from Europe does not consist in the difference between European milieu and ours. It consists in the fact that, comparatively speaking, of course, we have no milieu. If we are individually developed, we are also individually isolated to a degree elsewhere unknown. Politically, we have parties who, in Cicero's phrase, think the same things concerning the Republic, but concerning very little else are we agreed in any mass of any moment. The number of our sauces is growing, but there is no corresponding diminution in the number of our religions. We have no communities. Our villages even are apt, rather, to be aggregations. Politics aside, there is hardly an American view of any phenomenon or class of phenomena. Every one of us likes, reads, sees, does what he chooses. Often dissimilarity is affected as adding piquancy of paradox. The judgment of the ages, the consensus of mankind, exercise no tyranny over the individual will. Do you believe in this or that? Do you like this or that? Are questions which, concerning the most fundamental matters, nevertheless form the staple of conversation in many circles. We live, all of us, apparently, in a divine state of flux. The question asked at dinner by a lady in a neighboring city of a literary stranger, what do you think of Shakespeare, is not exaggeratedly peculiar. We all think differently of Shakespeare, of Cromwell, of Titian, of Browning, of George Washington, concerning matters as to which we must be fundamentally disinterested, we permit ourselves not only prejudice but passion. At the most we have here and there groups of personal acquaintance only, whose members are in accord in regard to some one thing, and quickly crystallize and precipitate at the mention of something that is really a corollary of the force which unites them. The efforts that have been made in New York within the past twenty years to establish various special milieux, so to speak, have been pathetic in their number and resultlessness. Efforts of this sort are, of course, doomed to failure because the essential trait of a milieu is spontaneous existence, but their failure discloses the mutual repulsion which keeps the molecules of our society from uniting. How can it be otherwise when life is so speculative, so experimental, so wholly dependent on the personal force and idiosyncrasies of the individual? How shall we accept any general verdict pronounced by persons of no more authority than ourselves, and arrived at by processes in which we are equally expert? We have so little consensus as to anything because we dread the loss of personality involved in submitting to conventions, and because personality operates centrifugally alone. We make exceptions in favor of such matters as the Copernican system and the greatness of our own future. There are things which we take on the credit of the consensus of authorities for which we may not have all the proofs at hand. But as to conventions of all sorts, our attitude is apt to be one of suspicion and uncertainty. Mark Twain, for example, first won his way to the popular American heart by exposing the humbugs of the 
Cinquecento. Specifically the most teachable of people, nervously eager for information, Americans are nevertheless wholly distrustful of generalizations made by anyone else, and little disposed to receive blindly formularies and classifications of phenomena as to which they have had no experience and of experience we have necessarily had except politically less than any civilized people in the world we are infinitely more at home amid universal mobility we want to act to exert ourselves to be as we imagine nearer to nature we have our tastes in painting as in confectionery some of us prefer tintoretto to rembrandt as we do chocolate to coconut in respect of taste it would be impossible for the gloomiest sceptic to deny that this is an exceedingly free country i don't know anything about the subject whatever the subject may be but i know what i like is a remark which is heard on every hand and which witnesses the sturdiness of our struggle against the tyranny of conventions and the indomitable nature of our independent spirit in criticism the individual spirit fairly runs amuck it takes its lack of concurrence as credentials of impartiality often in constructive art every one is occupied less with nature than with the point of view mr howells himself displays more delight in his naturalistic attitude than zest in his execution which compared with that of the french naturalists it is in general faint-hearted enough Everyone writes, paints, models, exclusively the point of view. Fidelity in following out nature's suggestions, in depicting the emotions nature arouses, a sympathetic submission to nature's sentiment, absorption into nature's moods and subtle enfoldings, are extremely rare. The artist's eye is fixed on the treatment. He is creative by main strength. He is penetrated with a desire to get away from the same old thing, to take it in a new way, to draw attention to himself, to shine. One would say that every American nowadays who handles a brush or designs a building was stimulated by the secret ambition of founding a school. We have in art thus with a vengeance that personal element which is indeed its savour but which it is fatal to make its substance we have it still more conspicuously in life what do you think of him or her is the first question asked after every introduction of every new individual we meet we form instantly some personal impression the criticism of character is nearly the one disinterested activity in which we have become expert we have for this a peculiar gift apparently which we share with the gypsies and money-lenders and other people in whom the social instinct is chiefly latent our gossip takes on the character of personal judgments rather than of tittle-tattle it concerns not what so-and-so has done but what kind of a person so-and-so is it would hardly be too much to say that so-and-so never leaves a group of which he is not an intimate without being immediately impartially but fundamentally discussed to a degree not at all suspected by the author of the phrase he leaves his character with them on quitting any assemblage of his acquaintance end of section eighteen